uh, you're talking about the kind of conservative that wants a judge to legislate conservative outcomes on the Supreme Court, then you may be disappointed because Judge Gorsuch may come to conclusions that you may not like because of things like judicial restraint, textualism, and originalism. If you want a justice who will be true to the Constitution and to the separation of powers by forcing the political branches to do the heavy lifting and saying that it's only for the judiciary to apply the law and not make it, then you should be very happy about uh, this justice. That was the voice of Judge Joseph Scoville. He is our guest today. And welcome to the podcast of the Acton Institute. This is Radio Free Acton. My name is Mark Vandermoss, your host here. And uh, pleasure to have you along with us today as we talk about the Supreme Court and the nomination of Judge Neil Gorsuch to fill the vacant seat that had been occupied by Associate Justice Antonin Scalia on the United States Supreme Court up until his death in February of 2016. And of course, this has been quite a long process to get to this point. Uh, Last year, Obama, of course, in his last year of uh, his term of office, following the death of Justice Scalia, uh, nominated, I should say, uh, Merrick Garland to uh, fill that vacancy on the Supreme Court. Uh, and of course, uh, it's, it goes without saying that an Obama nominee for the Supreme Court is going to be significantly more liberal in ideology than uh, Justice Scalia was. And so uh, to, to approve that nominee would mean that we would have a very significant shift in the ideological balance of the court, uh, which has historically over the past decades been sort of a center-right court. Uh, approving another center left, I suppose, is the way Garland was uh, was was described. But it, generally, uh, when you have a center left justice on all the major issues, they're going to rule with the left, uh, as Ilya Shapiro pointed out on our last uh, edition of Radio Free Acton. To to approve uh, Merrick Garland as a Supreme Court justice would mean that the Supreme Court would be shifting uh, significantly to the left, uh, probably for quite some time, uh, barring uh, the. Uh, retirement or passing of other uh, more liberal justices who might be replaced by a more conservative president. Well, the the Republicans in the Senate, who, uh, of course, control the Senate and the Senate uh, with its constitutional duty to advise and consent on these major nominations uh, by the executive branch, the Republicans rolled the dice. And they said, we, uh, because it is an election year, 2016 being the presidential election year, we're not going to hold hearings on Merrick Garland. We're not going to approve his nomination. Uh, the logic being that the voters, uh, the broad public, should be given an opportunity to weigh in on who they would prefer to have appointing a justice, uh, the Republican nominee or uh, the uh, the Democratic nominee, of course, who turned out to be Hillary Clinton. And at the time, I think uh, that, that decision was made. Nobody anticipated that Donald Trump would actually win the Republican nomination. Uh, and yet there it was. So the, the choice came down to uh, who, who do you want appointing a new member of the Supreme Court? And it, it was a choice between Donald Trump and uh, Hillary Clinton there. And the the Republicans essentially gambled that the voters would prefer to have uh, a more conservative president choosing a nominee than uh, than to have another liberal justice on the court. And uh, for a while there, it looked like they were going to lose that gamble. I think nobody uh, thought uh, for quite a long time that the Republicans were going to come out on top of that one. And yet, uh, as we know, the election turned out in a way that uh, virtually no one 
forecast, at least in the major uh, sort of mainstream media and the major political pundits that you would normally turn to for that. And now we have President Donald Trump, and he has nominated Judge Neil Gorsuch to fill that seat. Uh, so no Merrick Garland, uh, and now we have Neil Gorsuch. So the question now becomes, who is Neil Gorsuch? Uh, what sort of judicial philosophy does he have? What are his qualifications? What's his history? Uh, and and what uh, what should we think about this guy? Uh, it's uh, every time you have a new Supreme Court justice, sometimes these names are, are of people you know. Judges aren't particularly famous usually, and so it's always uh, kind of an interesting thing to see who gets nominated to these posts and and to kind of parse their their views. And that's what we're going to do today on Radio Free Acton. And in order to do that, I've asked uh, Judge Joseph Scoville to join us today. Judge Scoville is a retired United States magistrate judge for the Western District of Michigan. He's uh, got a lot of experience in the federal court system, has uh, that sort of insider knowledge of how the courts work, and and uh, is a, a good guy to turn to for some analysis of these sorts of judicial nominations. So without further ado, uh, let's turn to our interview here uh, today and uh, talk with Judge Joseph Scoville about the nomination of Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court right here on Radio Free Acton. Well, uh, I am pleased to be joined on this edition of Radio Free Acton by uh, a longtime friend of the Acton Institute, uh, retired federal judge uh, Joseph Scoville. Uh, judge Scoville, thanks so much for joining us today. Good morning, Mark. My pleasure. And you you have been, I, I have to say, you've been a friend of Acton for a long time. I can go back into our audio archives to the early days of the Institute when Father Sirico uh, would often do debates with various people, and uh, the moderator for the debate, uh, more often than not, was Judge Joseph Scoville. So you, you've got a long history with us, and we appreciate that. Uh, I've, I've been very lucky to be uh, part of Acton's life in small ways for a long time. Well, you uh, are, as I said, a retired uh, federal magistrate judge for the Western District of Michigan, uh, give us a little bit of insight into what is what is the role of a magistrate judge uh, within the federal court system. Well, as you probably know, uh, the federal system is broken down into trial courts, appellate courts, and then the Supreme Court. A magistrate judge is part of the trial court, the federal district court. Here in Michigan, we have two federal districts, the Eastern District in Detroit, Western District here in Grand Rapids. Uh, magistrate judges and bankruptcy judges are sort of at the bottom of that totem pole with uh, district judges uh, being the principal judge of the district court. So a magistrate judge is, uh, in essence, uh, a helper judge who does whatever it is that the district judges need to be done that they don't want to do themselves. <laughs> Still an important role, though, in yes. the in the judiciary, uh, and and that gives you a lot of experience uh, in the federal judiciary, being able to observe it and and see its workings. And so that's really the reason that I have you here today, because we now have, of course, on the other end of the federal judiciary, on the top end, we have an open seat on the U.S. Supreme Court with the passing of Justice Scalia, and now uh, President Donald Trump uh, has nominated a replacement for Scalia, and uh, the replacement is Judge Neil Gorsuch of the Tenth Circuit Court, uh, which is based in Denver, Colorado, handles a lot of cases in sort of that uh, central part of the United States, the western central United States. And so um, just what we're here for is is to get some, uh, some analysis of, of who is this guy. Uh, obviously, he's been uh, nominated as we record this for about a week now, 
uh, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of back and forth on who he is and and uh, and uh, what his judicial philosophy is. What do you know about Judge Gorsuch? What can, what can you tell us about the kind of judge that he is? Uh, judge Gorsuch has uh, the sort of gold-plated legal credentials that you tend to find on the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, no matter what party has nominated the person. Uh, he has an impeccable undergraduate and, and uh, graduate record. He went to Columbia, uh, Harvard Law School. Uh, every Supreme Court justice now sitting went to either Harvard or Yale, so he fits right in there. But beyond that, he got a uh, Doctor of Philosophy degree from Oxford, which is, by the way, the same degree that our own Sam Gregg has. And uh, Judge Gorsuch studied under the same uh, tutor. Sam uh, Gregg sadly was passed over for this nomination, which is yes, well, he, a bitter pill for us to swallow here at Acton. Well, well he couldn't stand the background check. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> After his education, Judge Gorsuch... Uh, spent many years clerking in the federal appellate system. He started with uh, Judge, Judge David Sentel of the D.C. Circuit. And Judge Sentel is what's called a, a feeder judge. Some appellate judges are very good at putting their clerks into clerkships in the Supreme Court. And Sentel is one of them. And uh, sort of ironically, Judge Gorsuch is now one of the most prolific feeder judges. Uh, uh, really? He's put 10 of his former clerks into Supreme Court clerkships. For some appellate judges, this is a big deal. Uh, it shows how well they're thought of by the Supreme Court justices. Other appellate judges really don't care. Is a, is a Supreme Court clerkship, is that, for, for, the, for the uninitiated into the judiciary, is that something that uh, is... is uh, say, a, a credit on one's resume that one would look at later and say, oh, this person might be on track for something Absolutely big. Absolutely right. Uh, it is the top of the top of the top of the legal profession who gets to be a Supreme Court clerk. Each Supreme Court get, uh, justice gets four clerks, and you can see just from the arithmetic how rare it is for uh, one of the many thousands of graduates each year to become a Supreme Court clerk. Generally, uh, the ranks of former Supreme Court clerks uh, make up the top of the legal profession, either in private practice or in government service. Most of our present Supreme Court justices were clerks for the Supreme Court. Interesting, interesting. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, judicial philosophy, because the, the one thing that I've noticed immediately when the pick was made, uh, there were a couple of names that were bandied about, but immediately when Judge Gorsuch's name uh, came to the surface. Uh, a lot of conservative commentators, uh, a lot of a lot of commentators that I read and respect, immediately were thrilled with the pick. Uh, and I've even seen, uh, and I think this speaks very well for for Judge Gorsuch too, that there have been a lot of uh, of folks who are very liberal who uh, would be opposed in general to his uh, judicial philosophy, who have also said this is a man who is. Uh, a man of impeccable character, a good, decent man. I've even seen headlines that say Judge Gorsuch is an excellent pick uh, for the court, and yet the, the, we still must reject him. So even the people who are saying we should reject him as a Supreme Court justice, either because they feel that it should have been Merrick Garland or uh, out of uh, some uh, sense of uh, opposition to his judicial philosophy, they still say this is a great, great pick. Well, there are, there are several things that make him a great pick. First of all, his, his background. Uh, I didn't get to the point in his uh, career of 
telling you that he, uh, after Judge Sentel, he clerked for Justice White, who was a Kennedy appointee, and then for Justice Kennedy, a Reagan appointee. Uh, so his credentials are gold-plated. Uh, he was, uh, right before he was put on the uh, Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, he was a Deputy Assistant Attorney General, uh, again, a harbinger, often, of things to come. So there's nothing you could look at in his background or in his personal history that would make you think that he is, is uh, not of the highest intelligence and integrity. In fact, in 2006, when he was confirmed for the Tenth Circuit, he was confirmed by voice vote, which unanimously, which unanimously, no one mm-hmm. from either party had the slightest objection to him. So that's the kind of person that either party would want to have on the Supreme Court. Now, uh, what makes him controversial for some people? Uh, his approach to interpreting the Constitution is the same in many respects, as Justice Scalia's. And that is, he's a textualist and an originalist. Now, those are big words, all right? The question is, what do we do with the words of the Constitution? How do we interpret them? And an originalist starts out with the idea that the Constitution is a law like any other law. We're a country of laws. We're governed by laws, not men. And, and a law is passed in a certain way with certain procedures and is written down and governs that which follows. And I, I think we should add that we are governed by laws, not men, is the ideal. It's not necessarily the way that it has worked that out, is but the it, ideal, that is and, and what we are supposed to be. one of the principles on which originalism is based. So when you're asked to interpret the Constitution, you start out with the idea that this is a law. It's the highest law, but like any other law, it means something. So what meaning are we to give it? We're to give it the meaning that those who passed it understood it to have. Those people had something in mind, and they expressed it by the use of words. That's where textualism comes in. We start with the words of the Constitution. We don't try to read the minds of those who passed it. We don't ask, what do these words mean to us? We don't ask, what are the changing conditions in the year 2017 that this must address? We ask, what did the people mean who passed this? What were they trying to accomplish? And the best evidence of that is the words that they used. So a textualist will start with the words. Originalist says, What do those words mean? What did those words mean to those who passed it? So rather than asking what would be the consequences of this ruling versus that ruling, an originalist will ask his law clerks or her law clerks, let's go back to dictionaries at the time. Let's go back to grammar books. Uh, Let's look at, at other things written in 1789, let's say. The Federalist and see what those words meant to the people at the time. And that's the meaning that those words are to be given. And, and I would note that this is a, a direct 
almost 180 degrees opposite from the other main philosophy of judicial interpretation, which is, uh, I guess you could sum it up as the living constitution. The living constitution, right. Which, which is that essentially we, we, the, the words mean whatever we need them to mean for the modern age, more or less. Pretty good summarization. We have a flexible and adaptable constitution <laughs> yes. that, that can be... It, it, and the, the thing about that is that, of course, if the words don't mean something, they don't necessarily mean anything. That's right. Then you really don't have a constitution. You have rule by 12 lawyers called Supreme Court justices. The theory of originalism is that it is best suited to a democratic society, actually to a Republican form of government, where the people rule through their elected representatives. Now, if the people have expressed their will through words of the Constitution, that's great, and that takes precedence over statutes. But if they haven't, and oftentimes they haven't, then the question is to be resolved by the people through their elected representatives, not by judges making up theories which in their minds would be most suitable to our modern times. The, the making up of rules suitable to the modern time is the job of the legislature, not judges. So in, in a very important way, uh, originalism restrains judges and puts the focus on the political process where competing interests are balanced Compromises are struck, and uh, a rule of law is fashioned by the legislature. After that, then the judge applies it. Mm-hmm. So, so Neil Gorsuch is is very much in the mold of the the man whose seat he is nominated to fill, Justice Scalia, in that he is both an originalist and a textualist. Let's let's talk about what we can expect in terms of areas of continuity between uh, Justice Scalia and uh, assuming that uh, Judge Gorsuch is is in fact uh, approved by the Senate. Uh, what 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 is likely not to change in the Supreme Court's jurisprudence? Well, uh, first of all, his approach to constitutional and statutory construction will be very close to that of Justice Scalia starting with the words and often ending with the words. Both Gorsuch and Scalia uh, mistrust legislative history. In prior times in the Supreme Court's history, legislative history, the, the committee hearings, the Senate reports, the House reports, that sort of source material uh, was often used to fill in the blanks. And uh, both Scalia and Gorsuch are very skeptical of that. If if Congress said something in a statute, that's what they meant. And you don't, you don't supplement that, and you certainly don't contradict that with something said in a Senate report that may or may not have found its way into the final bill. It, it, that seems like a reasonable position to take in the sense that the people to whom the law applies 99% of the time probably don't have any idea of that legislative history. They just look at the law as it's written and try to abide, they, it, assuming that they even look at the law. They look at the law as it's written and try to abide by the letter of the law. That's absolutely correct. It's part of due process of law that uh, that that those who are being governed have some notice of what they're supposed to conform to. And if you're looking to hidden sources like legislative history, uh, that's really not fair 
that's that's not that doesn't comply with due process of law. So that is certainly a big part of the of the theory of why you stick to the text of statutes as well as the Constitution. So you'll see that. Secondly, uh, you'll see probably even more than in Scalia's case, uh, the lack of uh, of an outcome determinative uh, approach. In other words. If the question is something controversial socially, like same-sex marriage or abortion, the judge will not be, uh, the justice will not be applying his own view of what that rule ought to be. But he will be asking himself, what does the Constitution or the law say about it? And so many times judges are unfairly criticized because the media or people don't understand what the judge is doing. To take a, a silly example almost, if an appellate judge overturns a murder conviction because there was an error in admitting evidence, that doesn't mean that the judge is for murder. That means that the judge is for the rules of evidence and the case has to be tried again. But you will see, especially uh, in political campaigns where judges have to run for office, that judge so-and-so let a murderer go. And you will see in headlines, similarly, that this or that judge rules for same-sex marriage when that might not have been the question at all. It's, it's not, it wouldn't necessarily be the position of the judge to be in favor of that particular issue. It's just simply a matter of we have to follow these rules, these procedures weren't followed, or this is what the law re requires of me. What about uh, areas of discontinuity with Justice Scalia? Because I know that there in, in my reading about... Judge Gorsuch, I know one major area of difference between him and Justice Scalia uh, deals with what's what's known in, in the legal community as the Chevron doctrine or the Chevron case. Can you tell us a little bit about what the Chev what, what, what people are talking about when they sure. refer to uh, this Chevron? This has to do with regulatory law, the law that governs uh, federal agencies. Now, Justice Scalia taught administrative law at University of Chicago. So he was well-versed in it, but in my view, he sort of accepted uh, too much of the inevitability that we would be ruled by government agencies. Uh, the whole uh, birth of government agencies goes back to the turn of the last century, to the progressive era, where the idea was that certain things were really too hard for the legislature, and that experts, and I'm using air scare quotes there, Experts should be making these decisions. Uh, and this would take these technical issues out of politics, which means also that they're taken out of political accountability. So uh, that's, that was the beginning of the creation of all of these agencies, which were empowered not only to enforce law, but really to make it through regulations. And uh, Justice uh, Scalia didn't have too much problem with all of that as long as there were even vague guidelines set down by Congress concerning the limits of, of agency power. Now, it is common for courts to defer to agencies with regard to technical issues and fact-finding. For example, the EPA has scientists in its employ, and if these scientists make a scientific finding, courts say, well, the scientists know and we don't. So we're going to defer. The Chevron Doctrine expanded that deference 
from facts and science to law. So the Chevron Doctrine, which takes its name from a 1984 case, says that in the case of an ambiguous statute, the courts will defer to the agency's construction, the agency's reading of the law itself. And Justice Scalia accepted that. Judge Gorsuch says, why would we defer to an agency with regard to a matter of law? Law, after all, is the business of the courts. And furthermore, by deferring to uh, agency construction of law, when the statute is found to be ambiguous, we encourage Congress to pass ambiguous statutes because they are thereby giving even more power to the agency and shirking even more responsibility because what happens when there's a, uh, an unpopular agency decision is that the politicians in Congress say, well, don't blame us. I didn't vote for that. I didn't vote for that. Yeah. And we'll, we'll hold the hearing right away and we'll get to the bottom of this. But it was Congress's fault in the first place for writing an ambiguous law that gave the agency too much discretion. So Judge Gorsuch wants to rein that in. And that, uh, as an example of that sort of rulemaking thing, we could point to Obamacare. Uh, that's the, exactly the type of legislation that this ruling has led to, I would, I would assume, in that you have a piece of legislation. The legislation itself was, what, 2,000 pages. But uh, once it's passed, there's uh, piles and piles of regulation. The, the Congress just directs the agency, the, the agency will do such and such. And then the agency has to promulgate rules upon rules upon rules. And in the end, a 2,000-page piece of legislation that Congress, well, barely looked at becomes tens of thousands of pages of rules for the American people that were not actually reviewed or, or authorized necessarily directly by their elected representatives. Absolutely correct. Uh, Article 1 of the Constitution says all legislative power is in the Congress. And we live in a world now where Congress delegates its legislative authority to an unaccountable, unelected set of agencies, which I think would uh, distress the founders. Now, just just to be fair to um, to Justice Scalia here, I, I think that he... His worry in the area of administrative law and the judiciary, uh, the judiciary branch's uh, interaction with it, that you could have activist judges uh, who 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 kind of run amok over over things as well. What what was Scalia's justification for deferring to agencies on matters of law? Well, um, you you've put your finger on the the philosophical basis for that, and that is judicial restraint that uh, an originalist, a textualist, will consider the judiciary to be uh, the least powerful branch of government, the most restrained, because it's the least democratic and the least accountable. That restraint, however, can be misapplied in certain circumstances because there are areas where the judiciary is the only bulwark of liberty uh, against abuse. So uh, you can, and may he rest in peace, I, I think Scalia w w was a little too restrained. I, I think, I believe his thinking was that at least the uh, executive branch is politically accountable, whereas the judiciary is not. But the truth is that the agencies are completely unaccountable, especially the so-called independent agencies, which are not uh, even directly accountable to the president. 
all of that being said, all of, all of that being said, and there's a lot to to look at. But thank you, first of all, for for a, a great analysis of Judge Gorsuch. But the, the I, I guess a a way to sum up is with this question: If you are a conservative who was deeply torn in the past election uh, about voting for Donald Trump versus voting for Hillary Clinton, but in the end decided to hold your nose and vote for Trump because of the issue of the Supreme Court, because we didn't want to see a a, a, li- a left liberal justice uh, put in place of, of Justice Scalia. Uh, is Judge Gorsuch's nomination enough to make, is, is that enough to kind of vindicate your your bet that, that Trump would, uh, would put in place a good justice? Well, it depends on what kind of conservative you're talking about. If, if, uh, you're talking about the kind of conservative that wants a judge to legislate conservative outcomes on the Supreme Court, then you may be disappointed because Judge Gorsuch may come to conclusions that you may not like because of uh, things like judicial restraint, textualism, and originalism. If you want a justice who will be true to the Constitution, and to the separation of powers by forcing the political branches to do the heavy lifting and saying that it's only for the judiciary to apply the law, not make it, then you should be very happy about uh, this justice. One one thing I should have asked even before I asked that question, because uh, at Acton, of course, we're very concerned about religious liberty. And there have been a lot of instances where questions of religious liberty have gone before the court just in the last few years. Um, in terms of, of the religious liberty issues that we've seen dealt with at the court, it, what is Justice Gorsuch likely to be like, assuming he's uh, appointed to the Supreme Court? Is, is religious liberty uh, safeguarded under a Justice Gorsuch? Uh, he has uh, been in the forefront uh, of safeguarding religious liberty in the couple of cases that have come before him. Uh, the Hobby Lobby case uh, was in his court uh among others. And he is, um, uh, I would say, one of the strongest proponents of religious liberty, or, or putting it another way, of uh, restraining the government from coercing individuals to act against their religious consciences. But let me say this, how a particular judge rules as a lower court judge may not be all that indicative of how that person rules as a justice. Because if it's a careful appellate judge or trial judge like Judge Gorsuch, that judge will be careful to follow precedent, which he can't change, uh, slavishly apply Supreme Court opinions. Once one is on the Supreme Court, those opinions are no longer binding. They're precedential, but the Supreme Court has the power to change its own rulings. So we have been surprised before by uh, judges who uh, did not act as justices the way they did as judges. And there's really no way to tell for sure how this one will be, but uh, he is likely to be as uh, disciplined a justice as he was a judge. I am talking with Judge uh, Joseph Scoville here on today's edition of Radio Free Acton. We're talking about the nomination of uh, Judge Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court by President Trump. And there's one other question that I have for you before we wrap this up. Uh, it, it regards the the sort of the political maelstrom that is is currently going on in Washington surrounding this nomination. And one of the one of the things, uh, the assertions that I've heard 
quite a few times from uh, liberal activists and even I think it's been implied by some members of the uh, the Democratic caucus in the Senate is that this is a quote-unquote stolen seat, uh, that this seat rightly uh, in some way should have gone to uh, Merrick Garland, who was uh, nominated by President Obama uh, almost a year ago now. Justice Scalia passed away in February of 2015. Merrick Garland's nomination came up not too long after that. And of course, the the Republicans, led by Mitch McConnell in the Senate, said, "No, we're not even we're not going to hold hearings on this guy." And the reasoning, uh, which, for my money, I think is pretty sound, is that uh, we we we're in the middle of a presidential election year. This is going to be a very consequential pick for the court, and the American people should be able to weigh in via the election on on who they want picking the next justice for the court. So. I think that's a, I, I think that's valid reasoning. I'm I was I was fine with that, but there are a lot of people who look at this and say that that was uh, the breaking of precedent. It was uncollegial. It was a bad thing for the Senate to do. What's your take on on the question of the stolen seat? Well, the charge that that seat was stolen is a is a political statement, uh, not a legal one. Uh, the Constitution in Article Two says that the president makes appointments of judges and justices with the advice and consent of the Senate. And that means that the Senate may approve or disapprove any nominee for whatever reason. They don't need a good reason. It's a matter of power. This is one of the checks and balances that the Constitution sets up. So the Senate doesn't have to justify, as a legal matter, its decision to reject a a judge or justice, or to not even take up that nomination. Now, as a political matter, uh, if uh, one party or the other wants to make uh, a political argument that will appeal to sort of barnyard equity, uh, that's up to them. And uh, those who really don't understand the Constitution might say, oh, yeah, that, you know, that was terrible, that was stolen. But uh, that was not President Obama's nomination to make unilaterally, just like it's not President Trump's. Uh, the president appoints with the advice and consent of the Senate. If the Senate doesn't want to confirm somebody, it doesn't have to, period. It, it, it echoes uh, uh, back to the uh, election of Scott Brown to the quote-unquote Kennedy seat in the Senate. Uh, there, there's, there are a lot of people who seem to have this idea that, uh, that uh, seats either in the Senate or on the Supreme Court somehow have to go by some hereditary principle applied to uh, if not uh, actual hereditary uh, you know sons and daughters of the of the previous holders of the seat at least intellectual hereditary uh, principle that 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 seat just by virtue of the fact that the person who held it before was so long in that seat and was a liberal or conservative that must be a conservative seat that's not the way American government works. Right. But by that thinking, this is an Italian seat, and <laughs> Gorsuch is completely unqualified. It, well, that would also rule out Sam Gregg for this seat, which I, you know, yes. we can't have that either. Right. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, Judge Scoville, it's really been a pleasure having you here on Radio Free Acton. And uh, when the next nomination comes up and, and Sam Gregg is nominated, we will have you back to talk again and hopefully we'll have opportunity to talk again as this process goes along if sam's put on the supreme court i'm moving to australia <laughs> you know that's that's probably uh that's i i i could i couldn't disagree with you there T tasmania where he's from in the in the meantime we'll just we'll give you the title of radio free act and chief legal analyst and uh, we'll thank you again for joining us today on the podcast my pleasure
Well, that brings our podcast to a close today. Uh, I want to offer my thanks again to Judge uh, Joseph Scoville. He was a great, uh, great guest and uh, made time out of his very busy schedule, even in retirement. The man is very, very busy. He came out to uh, to act and to sit down with me and talk uh, about the Supreme Court nomination, and I do appreciate that. Uh, we also had him here, and I, I, I need to mention this as well. He, he gave a fantastic lecture as part of our acting lecture series just a couple weeks ago on the growth of Leviathan in the United States. He, he, an excellent history and civics lesson. For anybody who, uh, who, if you have high school students who maybe aren't getting the full picture of American civics, uh, American government, and and you want them to understand exactly how our government came to be uh, the monster that it is today, uh, Judge uh, Scoville's lecture as the, at the Acton Lecture Series is an excellent place to go. Very clear, straightforward explanation of how the government, uh, the federal government in Washington, D.C., has sort of transcended, gone around the limits that were placed on it in the United States Constitution. That's in our video archive section at acton.org. You can find it right there on the videos page, and we'll post a link to it as well uh, when we uh, post this on the Acton Power blog. But thanks again to Judge Scoville for being with us. Thank you for listening to Radio Free Acton, and uh, we hope that you will uh, spread the links around, share this podcast with those who uh, maybe don't know about Acton, but you think would benefit from uh, hearing the perspective of the Acton Institute. And of course, check out the Acton Power blog. Blog.acton.org is the uh, address. Lots of news, information, commentary from an Acton perspective five days a week. It's all right there at blog.acton.org. In the meantime, we will be back with more editions of Radio Free Acton uh, in the not-too-distant future. We wish you well, and thank you so much for listening. Have a good day, everybody.